It is the OU Jewish Reaction Program here at the Nahum Siegel Network. And you know how the OU Jewish Reaction Program got the name Jewish Reaction because of the famous publication that the OU has been releasing for many, many years and making available to the public uh, called Jewish Action. So we figured once there's an audio component to what the OU presents publicly, we would call it Jewish Reaction. Now you know the history, and now we'll be able to uh, introduce our guests as we explore the um, pages of Jewish Action, which is set to release its uh, most current issue. Uh, we have with us Nahama Carmel, who's been with us before. She's editor of Jewish Action, has been for many years. Nahama, welcome back to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you so much. Good to be here. How many years with the magazine? How many years have I been at the magazine? Yeah. Uh, 14. There you go. I said a bunch of years. I was 100% accurate. <laughs> Almost 15, actually. I keep track because my son, I joined I joined the staff when I was pregnant with my son, so it's easy to remember. <laughs> there you go. And uh, we have with us Gil Student, who's joining us, editorial board member of Jewish Action. Gil, a pleasure to welcome you to the program. Hi, Nachum. Nice to be back. Tell us about your beginnings with Jewish Action and uh, how you got involved. Uh, that's funny. I was working at OU Press as a managing editor of OU Press, which publishes the books from the OU. And Nechama and I kept discussing um, issues that, w- that Jewish action should be covering. And at some point she said, why don't you just join the editorial board? Yeah. And, I, and ever since then I've been very involved with the, the issues that they come out. Well, there you go. Well, it's nice to have you aboard. And uh, you've, been, uh, you've been analyzing uh, books and issues in the Jewish community for quite a while, so I consider you an expert on the topic. <laughs> okay, thank you. All right, Nachama, is it on the newsstands yet? Meaning, is it uh, in people's mailboxes already, the current issue? or just so, about- so it is. I mean, I've been hearing. It hasn't come to my mailbox just yet, but I live in Farakaway, so who knows about the mail there. But I've been hearing that it is in people's homes already. So, yeah, and if people haven't gotten it yet, they should be getting it any day. So it's it's definitely out. How does one choose a cover story? So this latest issue was, was unfortunately, I should say, was fairly simple. I mean, you know, as as we, we, we meet, as we met, um, you know, it became very obvious that we had to focus on Rabbi Belsky. Rabbi Belsky had been at the OU for 30, I didn't even realize it, but he had been at the OU nearly 30 years. I mean, I was familiar to seeing him around, but um, it, it didn't even dawn on me that he'd been at the OU for that long. Um, so he's such a such a big part of OU culture and certainly of OU OU kosher, especially. Um, and we felt it was it was you know definitely appropriate to focus on on Rabbi Belsky. Well, you're making you're making a point that that we really discovered after his passing, and that is that um, uh, you know we we had always been told that he had a role, so to speak, in Psak and uh, being a halachic decisor at the OU and OU kosher. But we didn't realize the impact and how involved he was and the relationships he had formed with the staff and, uh, you know, to what extent he had been involved with the OU. And, to frankly, to the extent that the people at the OU knew him where they came on the air with me and told some amazing stories and vignettes about him and about his personality and about what he brought, uh, you know, to the table, so to speak, because of his vast knowledge in so many different areas. So what you're saying in terms of his, in terms of his impact and his presence is something that we also learned after his passing, unfortunately. Well, we at the staff, I mean, look, we knew. We, saw him, we knew that he came every Thursday. We knew that he was a post here. I'm just saying, I didn't realize how long he had been at the OU. Right. 
Um, and I mean, we all, we all, you know, had tremendous respect for, for Rybelski, obviously. But um, what, was, what was interesting for me, because I didn't know that much about him on a, on a personal level, the, the fact that he was so involved with um, the Russian community, that he even taught himself Russian. He taught himself how to speak Russian. It's fascinating. I, I didn't realize the extent of his chesed. I mean, I knew he was involved with the gunot, but I didn't know to what extent. So the personal aspect here was... Really, I learned so much about him, I have to say, and I, I'm very appreciative of the fact that I had this opportunity. Um, you know, uncovering the layers of, of who a gadol is. You know, we know a gadol from afar, and especially when you have the, you know, these, these books that sort of glorify these gadolim in a sort of unnatural way. It doesn't really connect you to them in a personal way. I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to sometimes speak to family members or, you know, sort of get beneath, see sort of like the, the back story of who this Gadol really is. And, and we, we really like to present um, the Gadolim that we present. We, we like to present the real story and, and present them in, in a very personal way. We did the same thing, actually, with Reverend Vadi Yosef when his daughter wrote about him. Right. Uh, articles about remembering Ryabelsky in this current issue of Jewish Action include by, uh, articles by Menachem Ganak or by Ellie Gersten. Uh, Rabbi Yisachar Dov Krakowski and Bela Sheva Brenner, a uh, Gil student. Um, uh, do, I would I would imagine because some of these people we've already spoken to about Ravbelsky in a public forum, and um, and all of them I'm sure have an interesting perspective. Uh, does his down to earth demeanor come through uh, through the writings of these four uh, of these four authors authors? Very much so. It's 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 incredible how he related so well. And you see this in the, in the articles, how he related with some of the clients of, the, of OU Kosher when he would meet uh, in the factories and um, you know, discuss with the engineers uh, some of the details of how they, they, the plants worked. Um, he, he got along very well with everyone he, he, he had a conversation with, uh, whether Jewish or not, whether learned or not, because he was just so easily to, easy to speak with. And he, he just had a, such a broad-ranging expertise that everyone felt comfortable with him. Yeah, really amazing. A lot of things, like I say, we learned uh, uh, once he passed away. His knowledge, the breadth of his knowledge in areas even out what we would normally say outside of Torah study. Obviously, everything is part of Torah study. That's probably a topic you, Gil student, can can address at length. Uh, but you know what I mean. Outside of what we normally consider academia, uh, Torah academia, or you know, within the Torah boundaries, so to speak, he was very knowledgeable in many different areas. Oh, as science, uh, anatomy, biology. I remember when the issue of uh, worms uh, and fish um, came up. I was at OU Press at the time, and, and my office was not far from Rabbi Belsky's office. And I remember the, the printouts from Wikipedia and the discussion, and, and we'd get, there were scientists um, involved from the Museum of Natural History, and he was right at home at the converse, in the conversation discussing all the nitty-gritty of, of marine life. It was, it was incredible. And I had read—I don't know if I had read it somewhere or if it came up in discussion after his passing about astronomy and uh, stargazing the planets. I mean, he, he talk about worldly. He was—he was worldly about other worlds as well. It seems. Yeah, and, and, and interestingly, just not even in the magazine, I, I happen to be friendly with someone who went to elementary school with Rabbi Belsky, and you know, uh, anyone could see that he was a tall man. He was very sports, uh, very involved in sports. He was, he was very good at basketball. That's what they tell me. He was, he was not, despite his brilliance and his broad knowledge, he did not have his head stuck in books. Very interesting. Uh, both uh, Nahama Carmel, editor of Jewish Action, and Gil Student, editorial board member of Jewish Action, with us 
via telephone. Nachama, anything else people should know about that section, about the cover story with Ravelsky? I think um, we've touched on a lot. Is there anything else as a preview that people should know? You know, I think what what moved me so much about Ravelsky was the fact that he he had such a heart. He had such a big heart. Um, and it comes through in some of the some of the anecdotes. Um, there is one anecdote that I that made its rounds. I think in other publications as well. But it's so very moving. Um, you know, he used to accompany his Talmidim, um, you know, in Camp Agoda to, on many trips. Um, and he on one of the trips there was a they went to Niagara Falls and at one point there was a some kind of site that that um, it was not wheelchair accessible, and one of the Talmidim. Uh, was in a wheelchair and he couldn't go to this. To, I guess he couldn't descend to see the, you know, the, this part of the falls. Um, so Rabbi Belsky said, "Well, I'll stay behind with him." And the Talmud was 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 pretty upset about it. Um, and then Rabbi Belsky notices that um, there's another a father carrying his young son on his shoulders. So he asked permission if he can carry this young boy as well to see the falls, and they gave him permission to do so, and he did that, and he carried this, this teenager on his shoulders. I mean, it's such an extraordinary story. It, it says so much about who he was. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of the stories in this piece talk about that aspect of him, his, very, his, his tremendous chesed um, and, and his large heart. And, um, and I think that that's a piece that people need to know about him. Cover story, Summer 5776, Jewish Action. It's Remembering Rybelski with four amazing articles. You have a special section in this issue on women leaders who speak about their work, their choices, and their lives. I don't, I don't think we can consider this a, a controversial topic. I think we can consider this what, Nechama? How would you say uh, the, this, uh, this um, area of Jewish life is being presented to the reader? Right. It's not controversial. We're looking at women who serve as leaders in the Orthodox world in, in, in many different ways. For example, a Rebetzin, an educator, an activist, a teacher. Um, and, we're look, and we're just asking them questions, you know, how do you find fulfillment? What is your life like? And it's a very honest um, uh, uh, sort of essays. Of, uh, the women just share their reflections. So we're not really here with any agenda. We're just here to hear from women. So obviously it won't speak to every woman, and not every every reader is going to agree with what every woman has to say, but that's irrelevant. I mean, these are this is um, their perceptions and, and their lives, and I personally found it very interesting, and I don't necessarily agree with, with some of what the women have to say either. <laughs> some of them come out very strongly with their various opinions about family life, and, and and look, everyone's entitled to their opinion. But I think overall, what makes the section so interesting um, is that these women are, are, are so fascinating in different ways. You know, what they've contributed in their homes and in the communities. And I think we have so much to learn from them. Uh, Gil Student, what can you tell us about this section? And what about the profile of Sarah Schneerer? Because uh, there, there are sometimes debates about how, how she was or was not accepted by different aspects of Orthodox leadership over the years, right? There was. I mean, I just want uh, the, the section about women. Uh, what, what I thought was so fascinating was it's just amazing how much some of these, some, some of them have accomplished in their lives. Uh, these profiles are, are, are mind blowing. Um, how, with seven children or more, um, these, these women have have still um, just accomplished and contributed, and and without I don't know how they do it without sacrificing their family life. Um, they're they're able to do so much. It's, it's very impressive. But as, as Nachama said, everyone has a different story and a different take on it. And and readers will be surprised by what some of the women have to say in this in this section. Very very interesting. What, um, we what, might have to do a follow up with all the feedback that we get. That's probably true. <laughs> you probably get a lot of feedback on all these issues that you read that you write about. 
Uh, Sarah Schneer, about her legacy, what do you say? Sarah Schneer's legacy is it's just uh, larger than life. If you think about all the Beis Yaakov schools or similar type schools that are around the, around the world right now, how many tens of thousands of young women are educated, uh, it, 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 was, it changed the global face of, of Orthodox Judaism. Um, and I, I know I personally, in my life, have, have benefited from Sarah Schneer's legacy, as has the entire community, through the leaders and the mothers and the, and the wives. It's, it's larger than life, what she accomplished. It's quite amazing. Special section of Jewish action for this uh, issue the summer of 2016. Women leaders speak about their work, their choices, and their lives, plus a uh, profile on Sarah Schneer's legacy revisited, written by Leslie uh, Ginsberg-Klein. Um, we go to Jewish law, and the issue of gun control and halacha is addressed by Joshua Flug. Um, is this strictly a halachic article, or do opinions work their way into the article about you know, what Jewish attitude toward ownership of guns should be? So Rabbi Flug is, is um, he, he's just a young and up-and-coming uh, scholar who's a brilliant Talmud Chacham and a very, very clear writer. Uh, and what, what he does is he covers the halachic aspect, and he explicitly says, you know, opinions vary. There's no clear scholarship, there's no clear studies showing whether gun ownership saves lives or does not. Uh, one point he makes is that in halacha, there's no concept of a right to own guns. That's just that it's American law, but it's not Jewish law. Uh, what, what really matters is if people have guns, will that save lives or will it cause more lives to be lost? Right. And, and that's, that's the bottom line. And, and, you know, couldn't be more relevant today. No, that's uh, for with, sure. With everything that's gone on, a terrible tragedy. And unfortunately, there are are many tragedies of this nature in Eretz Israel and around the world. And the question that law enforcement has to figure out is, is it better for for local citizens to carry guns or not? In Israel, it's very common. Everyone has training because of the army, so a lot of people carry guns, and that saves lives. Uh, What would be the case in, in the United States? I don't know. All right, Nachama, when are we going to write the article about uh, whether Jews should own guns or not? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we really did, we tried to, to stay away from, from taking a particular position. Well, that, but... well, one second. I don't know if that's true. I saw the OU statement this week about gun control. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if they do hold back from taking a position on this issue, frankly. Well, I'm saying in Jewish action, first of all, for Jewish, when we planned this issue, we didn't know about Orlando. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand, but I think right, I think right. it would have been the OU position with with or without Orlando. But okay. That is correct. That is correct. We, we didn't uh, in this particular article. We didn't we didn't uh, take a position. We want the people to sort of think about the issues. Um, and there are a lot of issues. I mean, carrying a gun to shul. Um, it, it's really not not a clear halakhic answer whether or not. Um, uh, it's appropriate to do so, and we're not here to paskin. So, um, it, look, maybe at some point we will have a, a pro and a con position. We might want to do that going forward. We have to see how much um, how much interest this particular piece generates. That's true, and that'll determine whether you uh, explore it even further. Uh, speaking with um, uh, Gil Student, editorial board of uh, Jewish Action, Nahama Carmel, editor of Jewish Action, summer 2016 issue is out. We just went through some of the featured articles that are uh, that are going to be, uh, that, that will be and are in the uh, magazine. You'll be able to see those um, when it arrives on your doorstep. Uh, in addition, uh, you have some great departments. Um, the president has a message. Alan Fagan has an open letter to Michael Steinhardt, which I'm curious to see. I'll be reading that one. Um, Rabbi's Diary about prenuptial agreements. There, there's somewhat of a controversial topic, wouldn't you say, Nahama? 
Yeah, but you know what? This this is such a compelling story. Rabbi, Rabbi Weissman really um, illustrates. I, I don't know whether the story is true or not, in all honesty, but it could be true. It definitely could be true. He illustrates with this story how very important the prenuptial agreement is. I, basically, this woman who's a secular Jew marries, uh, you know, is married to this guy, and, and for whatever reason, they did have a, a prenuptial agreement, a halakhic prenuptial agreement, um, and then they get they get divorced, they have a secular divorce, but they don't have a Jewish divorce, and she's about to get married. She calls the basin in 10 days. I, I would imagine it's true. It just sounds too, too vivid. The details are too vivid. She calls the basin like 10 days before, um, her or two weeks before, whatever it is, before her her wedding date. You know, she's going to marry somebody else at this point, and she just says, you know, I'm getting married, and you know, I, I could go with an Orthodox rabbi, but he insists that I have uh, a guest. In any case, um, he just illustrates through the story how he calls up the the ex, and um, he pretty much tells him, like, you really have to do this, or else there are really going to be serious consequences, financial consequences. And how he's able to get this guy to come down. They meet in a library and they get it done in 10 minutes. But it's really extraordinary how effective, based on this story, it seems very effective. Now, you know, in in terms of having it universally accepted in the the firm world, you know, I don't know how effective this article is going to be. But I think certainly when you're you're talking about about secular Jews who would otherwise not not care about a get, this seems to be um, a a very effective um, tool. Interesting. Gil, anything you want to add on that? Well, I think in, in, the, in the communities of Jewish action readers, I don't, I don't think the prenuptial agreement is controversial at all. Uh, it's just a matter of, of getting people excited about it. it. It's hard to get excited about a prenuptial agreement before a marriage, cause, before a wedding, because everyone's so excited and positive, you don't want to think about what could happen. And what needs, what needs to happen is for it just to be standard for every rabbi, for every community, before the wedding is signed a prenuptial agreement. It'll save a lot of heartache, um, not from the couples who we see are all happy, but from other couples, uh, right. once we make it standard. So I, I, I don't think it's controversial, and I encourage every listener here to, for their children and for themselves to have it, not for your own sake, but for the sake of your friends and your neighbors. Understood. Good point. We'll do a couple more. The Chef's Table explores cooking smart to outsmart Alzheimer's and dementia. Uh, Nahama talking about speaking about things that are hard to believe. Um, does does uh, Noreen Gillitz in fact prove that one can cook and outsmart Alzheimer's and dementia? You know, she really doesn't in this particular article. But I know, I, from what I understand, she is writing a book. She she's heavily uh, researching this topic for a book. So she's definitely an expert. I mean, we don't we don't devote that much space in our issue to to analysis of that topic. We're pretty much interested in just the recipes in her column. Right. We usually, you know, we cut her text. But but she's definitely in, in, in immersed in this topic, and and she would definitely be considered an expert. And I encourage readers who are interested in the topic um, to reach out to her. Um, and to uh, definitely send her questions if, if, if um, you know, if this topic interests them. I mean, def- unfortunately, Alzheimer's is becoming, it seems to be becoming more and more prevalent um, and uh, causes a lot of heartache for, for a lot of people who are suffering. Um, a book section includes a review of A Not in God's Name, or by Sachs' book on confronting religious violence, The Current to Hillam. We had an opportunity to speak about that as well, uh, reviewed by Arya Spiro. That's a work that uh, has a commentary by by Dr. Svi Hirsch Weinrib. And uh, Gil Student, you have reviews in brief. Um, do you enjoy doing this? Is, uh, do you still love delving into all these new books that come out? Reviews in brief are great because I get to point, I get to highlight 
a, a little bit here, a little bit there, without having to do a full review. So I can tell readers about four different books, each of which they'll find interesting and exciting, and uh, you, you get more bang for the buck. <laughs> you know, that, that's the way I look at it. The reader can just flip through two pages and get a bunch of ideas of what, what they could be doing on a Shabbos afternoon rather than taking a nap. Is there a particular one? I'm looking right now at the ones you did review this time around. Is there a particular one you want to point out to these listeners? Well, I, it, it's, I'll take two. Okay. <laughs> you offer one, I'll take two. No problem. The Lashon HaKodesh is a fascinating book in that it's um, very from, uh, but it's a history of the Hebrew language, going through all the farm that you know, all the little bits and pieces of Midrash that you've heard throughout the years. He puts it all together, and he constructs a timeline of how Hebrew has changed, because intuitively we know it's changed. We know the Hebrew in, in Tanakh is not the same Hebrew we speak today on Dizengoff Street. Right. Um, and he, he, he explains the development, what it means religiously, hashkafically, halachically. Very fascinating. Very, very well done. And that's Rabbi uh, Ruben, that's Ruben Chaim Klein who wrote that. Rabbi Ruben Chaim Klein, it, it's not for everybody. You have, you know, it, it has to capture your, your interest. But if, if you have even a remote interest in the subject, this is a book that, everyone need, that you need on your shelf. Okay. And the other one, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Nechama pushed me to do it, because it's not technically a book. It's a journal. There's a shul in, in, in L.A. that publishes a journal, Nitzachon. They've done two, two, um, two issues so far. And what they do is, to celebrate the Torah learning in the, in the community, is they encourage everyone, the rabbis, the lay people, um, to, to write Torah articles. And they, com- they edit it very nicely, and they combine it, and they publish it on the web, and they give out hard copies. And it's a beautiful thing of a shul to celebrate the Torah learning together, and it challenges people, challenges the, the members of the shul to, to really think out their learning enough so they can say it over in writing. It, it, it's a great accomplishment, and it's something other shuls should really take to heart, and, and I encourage other shuls to do it as well. Is it available to people outside the L.A. area? It is online at their adastorah.shulcloud.com. All right, there you go. Uh, it's the latest issue of Jewish Action. Features the cover story in Rabbi Belsky of Blessed Memory. Nahama Carmel is editor of Jewish Action. Uh, Gil Student, member of the editorial board of Jewish Action. Another great job. Uh, I, it's obvious that the longevity of this magazine is uh, is justified. And Nahama, I said this to you last time. It, it seems every issue, just great quality material after great quality material. And I guess that's the secret to the longevity of Jewish Action. Well, we thank you so much, Nahama. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Nachum. This is great. Nachum Carmel, Gil student. You are listening to the Nachum Siegel Network. Yovazi, <laughs> 
It's the OU Jewish Reaction Program, and uh, for the second half of our uh, program this week, Rabbi David M. Cohen is with us via telephone. Rabbi Cohen has a book entitled, We're Almost There, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose. He's a rabbi, lawyer, therapist, and special needs advocate. Um, he is uh, he is at the uh, OU, the regional director of Synagogue Services for Manhattan, Westchester, the Bronx, and Stamford, Connecticut. Rabbi David Cohen, welcome back to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you so much. It's always uh, nice to be back, Nahum. I thought of you over Shavuos. Really? <laughs> yes. Uh-oh. And I'll tell you why. You might find this funny. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm living in lower Manhattan, and... Um, I I frankly prepared myself for the eventuality that for this three-day untif, the likelihood would be that most people in the neighborhood would be away. You know how it is. Sure. You know, and, and, and I discovered over the three days that not only was the neighborhood packed with people, which was interesting because I, I because everyone I knew had gone away. <laughs> not only was it packed with people, but there were plenty of guests as well. And it took me back to the old adage that Manhattan – is filled with Jewish people. It's sometimes hard to find them, <laughs> but because yeah. it's easy to be anonymous on this island, uh, right. but, but it's filled with Jewish people. I thought of the the work and and really the difficulty in some ways of uh, you know keeping that in mind as you lead synagogue services, you know, for Manhattan and other places. Uh, that it, it's unique, I believe, to this area that that it's such a large Jewish population, but in many cases you just never see anybody. I think uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, Manhattan, because of its because of the demographics that live in Manhattan, because on the one hand the younger people tend to be relatively transient in general, because the older, more established people tend to have summer homes where they can have a little bit more space and kind of uh, cooler air, etc. During the summer period, so certainly uh, the after Pesach period is definitely a challenging time. But but I think you're right. There is always uh, there. There are tons of Jews all over the city, and it's a tremendous opportunity to kind of open our eyes a little bit and kind of see who's been under our nose. And 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 a lot of the work we do at the OU and synagogue services is really trying to help schools maximize their potential in terms of outreach to individuals and to try to really be most effective, not only in servicing their regular constituents but also identifying. Who else may be uh, may be able to benefit from their from their services and their schools? And I don't know which synagogue specifically you deal with in Manhattan, but I can tell you that one would be shocked at how many minyanim, beginners minyanim, specialty types of religious gatherings are taking place here on a regular basis each and every week. It really is astounding, and I'm only familiar with a piece of it, and I'm astounded by it. I can only imagine what's happening in the bigger picture. So, yes, I mean, I happen to live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Before I came to the OU, I was a rabbi of one of those specialty shuls, in essence, myself. But just commenting on what I observe on the Upper West Side, and I definitely see as part of my job as an ambassador of the OU in Manhattan, 
So as you know, I spent the Shabbos on the Lower East Side at Bialystoker earlier in the year, and I have the opportunity, it's easier just from the comfort of my own home, to frequent different shuls, whether it's the Manhattan Jewish Experience, which Rabbi Mark Wilde does a phenomenal job of outreach, whether it's Rabbi Jonathan Schiffel and the base and what he's built in terms of a more international flavor, South African, a Kirov-type institution, whether it's Effie Buchwald and Enjap, and then what he's done out of Lincoln Square Synagogue. We have kind of the mega-synagogue model on the Upper West Side, but each and every one of them tends to have some sort of beginner-type minion. The stabilization of Orthodoxy is incredible. The Shtiblach on the West Side do a phenomenal job of catering also to different demographics. So it's really an, it's an embarrassment of riches for somebody who's looking for spiritual life in the city. I don't even know if you're aware. You know, there's a synagogue on 34th Street and 9th Avenue that every Shabbos has, like, I don't know, a hundred French Jewish tourists. Anybody who's French who comes to Manhattan to spend Shabbos, that's where they go to daven and to eat, which I, I, I just discovered by accident. I mean, that's just one, again, just one example of, you know, <laughs> minyanim sprouting forth from places you'd never believe. Is that the West Side Jew? Is that out of the West Side Jewish Center? That's something completely different. Because there's a synagogue, one of our OU member synagogues, the West Side Jewish Center, is located right over there. Oh, so that must be it. On the north side of the street? I think so, yeah. yeah that must be it. Am I, I think I'm right by saying 9th Avenue. Maybe it's 10th, but uh, yeah, but that's what. But they open up their but they open up their doors and and again the funny part or the the more hard to believe part is that we're not talking about ten eleven people gathering together in some cases we're talking about really large crowds. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, I, I was derelict and I'm not even focused on the east side. You know, the KJ Keyless Gesture and the Beginners Minion that George Rohr was instrumental in, in building in Rabbi Eli Weinstock is phenomenally engaged and involved there. I mean, thank God, really there are. Uh, there's no, no dearth of opportunities for one searching Chabad's. I mean, it's just, it's, it's packed. Yeah, well, it's packed. It's packed. again, a lesson I learned over Shavuos, so I figured I'd share that with you. I would, I would guess that your experiences in Westchester, the Bronx, and Stamford are a bit different. Am I right? So I actually spent Shavuos in Stamford, Connecticut, which was a wonderful opportunity. I was a scholar resident at Congregation Aguda Shalom, which is kind of the main synagogue in, in Stanford, the main Orthodox synagogue. Are you, so are, you, are you related yeah. to the rabbi? No, Donnie, Rabbi Donnie Cohen is a good friend, but we're not, uh, we're not relatives. I'm actually a, a, a pure Cohen, and he just has the last name Cohen. Uh, <laughs> but no, we're not, uh, we're not related. But I'll tell you what was phenomenal to see about that. That's what kind of t- takes us back. It's a different model, like you said. That's one mega shul that has everything under one roof. And all different types of Jews, whether, you know, more Orthodox, less Orthodox, they all come together in one place. It's really, it's very inspiring to see that as well. It's not just kind of stabilization or kind of everybody has their own unique little niche like we have in Manhattan. It's really kind of a communal shul that services everybody under one roof, which is also very inspiring. And what you mean and by uh, everybody uh, is, you know, the Hashgama people and the Shiurim people and the, the people who want to daven early so they can learn till they eat and the ones who want to come to re- normal, regular time, so to speak, and then have a nice kiddish. Every, every type of person is serviced there. That's, that's correct. It's really, and, and even, even people outside of, quote-unquote, orthodoxy have, you know, have a home there and feel comfortable there as well. It's really a shul that breaks the barriers and really does outreach to all different types of people in the community. Uh, Speaking to uh, Rabbi David M. Cohen, author of the book We're Almost There, and the uh, regional director of synagogue services for the OU, Manhattan, Westchester, the Bronx, and Stanford. Since we're already on the topic, before we move on to the uh, uh, theme of the book and some of the things you're doing, 
Uh, tell us about Westchester and the Bronx. Is the Bronx at all a little bit like Manhattan in that you'd be surprised where there are shuls and small manyanums sprouting up? So I think that's true. I mean, Riverdale uh, currently is a, a place where there's a lot, a lot going on, a lot of different uh, shuls. There's different groups of people that are kind of starting to form in Riverdale. I think Riverdale has a little bit of a tinge of Manhattan to it. It's Manhattan-esque because it is uh, rather pricey. It's not a place where people tend to lay roots for the long term. Young families tend to be there for a period of time. It also has that kind of transient nature to it. It's kind of a hybrid between suburbia and, and city life. So I think that is, in, in essence, that is a place where there is a lot of uh, variety there. I think in Westchester, as you move into Westchester and places like Harrison, New Rochelle, Scarsdale, you find more kind of closer to Stanford, although maybe not as broad as Stanford, because in Stanford, the Orthodox shul is actually the largest shul of all the denominations. Right. It's not necessarily the case in, in Westchester and places like that. But in Westchester, New Rochelle, et cetera, these places, you see, you see more see that kind of one synagogue. I grew up in West Hempstead, New York, which is a beautiful community on Long Island. It's grown tremendously. But it's not a place where you have, you know, 50. You have, you have a lot of different minyanim under one roof, but you don't have, like, tons of shuls all over the place which is something I think which is more like, uh, more city-like, you know, not so much uh, in Westchester. Interesting. Very interesting. Uh, just, you, you, you're covering a lot of neighborhoods. <laughs> We're trying. Look, we really want to make uh, the OU relevant to communities, to people. We really see that the OU has a tremendous amount of, to offer, both in terms of technical expertise in running schools and running schools and having familiarity with best practices across the country, and also getting people engaged in the, in, the, in the broader platform of what we do at the OU in terms of the advocacy work that we do in Washington and for tuition on the local level and, and AYACHAD and NTSY and college campus work. So we really feel that there's what to offer, and by creating these kind of ambassadorships to the schools, that we've really seen a lot, of, uh, a lot of very positive feedback, and there's a lot of work to do still but it's definitely a great start. The book is called We're Almost There, uh, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose, a Mosaic of Press Release distributed by Feldheim in New York, written by Rabbi David Cohen. Uh, We're Almost There, is the, is, that, is the title We're Almost There because that's the best example of trying to live with patience, perseverance, and purpose when one is, when one is either trying to get there or convince others when they're traveling with them that, in fact, we're almost there? I think it's true. I mean, you ask almost anybody whatever their life ambitions are or goals are, I think it's rare to meet the person who has accomplished it all, who's completely satisfied, who doesn't want to kind of climb another rung on the ladder. So in essence, that gap of trying to get somewhere to a destination, like you're saying, like when you're in a car or you're on a plane ride or whatever it is, and you're frustrated by the kind of the lapse of time to really get somewhere. So I think that's emblematic of people's lives. And different, look, it affects different people in different ways whether it's professionally, whether it's personally. But there's so many people, whether it's finding the shidduch, whether it's getting the job they want. Everybody is yearning and striving, and we don't always get there as fast as we'd like to, and we need a perspective on how to deal with that reality, and that's really what the book was aimed at or geared toward. Is it hard to find stories and examples of patience, perseverance, and purpose when writing this book? I don't, I don't, think, I don't think at all. I don't think at all. I mean, I, I, in writing the book, I, I kind of worked off kind of autobiographical in a certain way, and a lot of the stories that represent these qualities are really realizations that I came to in my own experiences, where, whether it was raising my son with special needs, whether it was uh, the circuitous uh, route I took to finding my, my wife in Israel after many years, etc. 
So I, I kind of had a lot of personal experiences of, of where I felt I needed perseverance and patience to kind of, you know, arrive at my personal journey and still, of course, in process. But when I look around the world at large and you read just in the media and you read events and you read about, you know, different people, whether it's athletes uh, or, or politicians, whatever it is, you can see that even Hillary Clinton, let's use Hillary Clinton as a great example, somebody who's had huge aspirations for a really long time to ascend to the presidency, and not that she's had a shabby career politically, but she got beat out by President Obama in 2008. She had, a, had to wait, you know, eight full years to kind of, you know, she had a nice gig as Secretary of State, but she kind of had to wait to really get the chance to finally get the Democratic nomination. She had to deal with Bernie Sanders, which was completely unanticipated. And even now, she's got Donald Trump in front of her. Nobody really knows what's going to happen, although clearly she's a favorite. So I think she's actually a tremendous model of, uh, of perseverance and patience, both in terms of what she dealt with personally with her husband and now what she's dealing with in terms of being so close to her life ambition or dream, presumably, and not knowing what's going to happen. You know, I think many people have that in their professional lives. Yeah, no question about it. And the way that's dealt with is so vital, so important. Uh, sometimes I think about her, I'm not, not, not her greatest fan, but I do think about how every step of the way has been painstaking for her in many ways. Obviously, there's been you know uh, some easy steps or relatively easy ones. But as you pointed out, it must just it must eat away at her, or or it's the type of thing that would eat away at me. So therefore, I project that it must be eating away at her. Maybe that's her right. advantage that she doesn't let it eat away at her. <laughs> that she doesn't sit up, you know, at night worried about or, or or being concerned about what could have been or what should have been. Look, I think it's important. You know, every person has a baseline of where they are in life. Certainly. Many of us would be thrilled to have her right. platform and her level of accomplishment. I'm thinking even sports. I don't know if you're a sports fan or not, but last yes. night was Game 7 of the NBA Finals. Right. And LeBron James brought his team back from being three games down, three to one you know, games down in the series, something that's never been done before. LeBron is certainly an immense talent and somebody who's been in the public sphere has been criticized greatly in terms of leaving Cleveland, going to Miami, coming back to Cleveland, and I think he even mentioned last night himself that, you know, that he doesn't do things the easy way. He doesn't do easy. Right. Look at this guy. <laughs> Look at this guy. He's like the king, right? He doesn't do easy. But I think it's a very powerful Mostert Hoskell to many of us. But, yeah, this guy has riches and fame and fortune. But he's trying to accomplish a goal. And that goal didn't come easy to him, despite all the positive talent that he possesses. And that's something that I think we all can glean a tremendous power, tremendously powerful message that we have to persevere, we have to have patience, we have to work incredibly hard to reach our goals, and we might we may fall short anyway. You know, somebody fell short last night. You know, Golden State Warriors won 73 games. They were also record breakers, and they fell short, and that's painful, and that's part of life. And yeah. how they're going to respond to that and how they're going to get up from that is also very telling. But it's funny because with a couple of minutes left to the game, when it, when it was you know tied or very very close, whatever the case was, I said to my kids, oh, my gosh, could you imagine if he just falls short now? Could you imagine? I mean, how painful will that be if he falls short at that point? And it's just, I mean, one, and then the other thing I found interesting, by the way, but maybe a little bit off topic, but I, I found it interesting that even with a few seconds left to the game, you saw how focused he was. And then when the game ended, of course, he was, a, you know, he, he was very emotional and, and let loose. But, you know, somebody, somebody like that, even if the game is at hand, and it seemed that way when there was a four-point lead with just a few seconds left, he stayed very focused, wanted to make sure that this was, a, you know, this was an effort that would, uh, that would certainly bring victory. And then, once the, once the clock ran out, then the celebration and the emotion began. 
Uh, you know, I was thinking. I was thinking about this a little bit this morning. Just listening to the pregame interviews, he had a tremendous calm about him. I just felt like he knew he had it. And the other team, I, I felt like they. You just sometimes you sense it subliminally. You know, he he just he, he reached. He arrived. Uh, we're almost there. He was there. And like I think when we're when we're there and we're ready to ascend to that next level in life, we kind of sense it. We kind of know it. I kind of felt like. He had it this time, and they can sense the other guys were nervous. They didn't necessarily have it. You know what you remind me of when people ask others, especially people who are involved in the business world, is your business successful? Mm-hmm. And it, I, sometimes that could be a really confusing question because in the mind of the person who's you know leading the project or leading the business, you know, sometimes they, they, you know, they appreciate their success, but there's so much more they want to accomplish or so much more they want to get to. And you know, so I wonder if there's even a, a good answer to that question. You know what I'm saying? It's it's again, it's it's process. I think process. As long as we're still, I think we're, you saw Solange famously commented, "Called Mansha near the lake of Charlotte Right. While the light is still burning, you can fix, you can change, you can grow. We in, in Jewish belief certainly believe very much in the sanctity of life, not just quality of life, but sanctity of life. And there are many, you know, inspirational stories of people even at the very end of life, who are able to do small things, small gestures that create worlds for them in, in the world to come. So, you know, right, what does success mean? Right, what does success really mean? We have to be satisfied. We have to be happy with what we've accomplished and the opportunities that have come our way. But I don't think, you know, we should never be fully satisfied or happy, but we have to be able to juggle and balance and be able to acknowledge the success. You know, they want to be around a person who's always like, oh, everything's always terrible. A person has to, of course, be able to acknowledge when they've had a modicum of success, but at the same time remind people that that's, you know, athletes also, they say this is not the end. You know, we got to get to, you know, this is, we won something, it's great, but there's more to accomplish. Rabbi David Cohen, the book is called We're Almost There, Living with Patience, Perseverance, and Purpose, distributed by Feldheim and Mosaic, a press release. You are planning on making available uh, to everybody around the world, and already there are uh, a couple of them that are out there, uh, podcasts, uh, that deal with this topic, or, or similar to this topic. Explain to everybody what the podcasts do. So it's been a very exciting project for me. I, as, a, as a retired pulpit rabbi, so I, I, I certainly like to speak and enjoy speaking and like uh, sharing with uh, you know, thoughtful, provocative things with an audience. So I thought to myself that it would be, it may be something that would be impactful for people to take themes from my book about patience, perseverance, and purpose, but apply it to everyday life, kind of illustrate through the experiences of real-life people and real-life scenarios, how they have persevered and how they have accomplished their goals and overcome obstacles and challenges. So that's kind of the idea behind the podcast. It's kind of to actualize the book beyond just my own personal experiences and bring it to life through the experiences of, of famous or interesting people in the world. Very interesting. And people will be able to access these through? So they're available on my website. It's uh, Rabbi www.rabbidavidmcone.com. There's a there's a link for podcasts. They're available on the OU website, the OU.org website, and they're also available on iTunes. So one can really uh, one should be able to access them and find them in uh, various places. I'm sure they've asked many sportscasters who used to be coaches uh, <laughs> the same question: uh, Are you enjoying life on on this side of the uh, of the sport, so to speak, now that you're a retired pulpit rabbi? So it's been terrific. Yeah, I wrote an article a few months ago at the Jewish Press that uh, got some acclaim, both uh, positive and negative. I kind of 
took the position of writing from the pews and talking about what it's been like to be on the other side of the table, both positive and negative in terms of things I've observed. But on a personal level, it's been really refreshing to kind of take a, like a meta perspective and view, to visit different shuls, to be scholar residents in the shuls in my region and across the country on weekends, and to really kind of see things just from a different place. Very healthy. I don't know what my future holds. I don't know if one day I'll be back in a pulpit or I won't. I have no idea. But it's always very healthy to take a step back and to kind of really assess kind of what you've done, where you're going, and to really see, like, what other people are doing. We, we kind of live in a vacuum. Many of us are very much aware rabbis of the shul or community or we have a particular focus or area. So we see uh, within our own Dalit Amos, within our own sphere, but it's, it's great to see kind of what's going on in the broader Jewish world. Very cool. All right, David Cohen, we're almost there is the name of the book. Check it out, everybody. Podcasts are going to become more and more available, and uh, he continues in his position as Director of Synagogue Services New, Jer- uh, New York region from Manhattan, Westchester, Bronx, and Stamford, Connecticut. All right, Cohen, greatly appreciate the time. Continue. Good luck with all your projects. Thank you so much. I appreciate being on the show now. Be well. I, I thank you for that. Uh, you've been listening to a Jewish Reaction, the Jewish Reaction program, every Tuesday starting at 9 a.m., right after JM and the AM, here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Check us out on social media. On Facebook, Nahum Siegel Network. On Twitter, at Nahum Siegel Net. And Instagram, Nahum Siegel Network. Check it out and enjoy. My thanks to all of our guests, and thank you for listening to the OU Jewish Reaction program right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Mm-hmm.